Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems in the world. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early stage climate tech in the world. This episode is led by Michael and Jenny, the GPs of Climate Capital's Bio Fund. Today, we are interviewing Elliot Roth of Spira. Tell us about Spira, Elliot. Our main limitations in transitioning a world to a much more a like solar punk future, for lack of a better term, something that enables us to to kind of get beyond petrochemicals and to a realm where we're making things that are better for people and the planet involves starting to replace some of these more harmful raw materials with with things that are better uh, just overall. And what that really entails is um, sort of sort of like getting access to these new materials. I like to think of it as um, we define our ages on the basis of different materials. So we have the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, Copper Age, uh, Plastics Age, the Silicon Age, right? We're moving into the Biomaterials Age. And in particular, what Spira is taking a look at is how do we actually bring about the fourth industrial revolution? How do we actually scale these kind of compounds? in a way that makes sense both from an investment side of things, so generates a positive return for investors, but also uh, by leveraging those sort of mechanisms of capitalism, we're able to decarbonize our economy in a way that makes sense both for the um, the constituents, like farmers that are participants, as well as the uh, general population. And so what that means is that Spira creates carbon negative materials. We do that by genetically engineering algae, and then we leverage and work with a network of farms all over the world to produce these materials, mostly for food, cosmetic, and textile companies right now. And we particularly start with higher-end specialty chemicals, and we're starting to work our way down the cost curve. And uh, we've designed a particular method of engineering algae uh, in such a way that is scalable and doesn't require any additional capex from investors. And that means that we can produce metric tons of engineered materials and compounds uh, very, very quickly and uh, do it in such a way that we can start displacing and replacing petrochemicals in a way that uh, is more functional and better, faster and cheaper. And so uh, right now we work with 83 farms in about 14 different countries. We can do around 566 metric tons of total uh, materials every single month from algae, algae biomass every single month. And then uh, currently, we're only using a small fraction of that capacity as a means of testing out production of engineered pigments. And those pigments are, are high-value, low-volume, uh, Tesla Roadster-style approach to the market, where we craft these uh, engineered algal strains as a means of displacing and replacing like blue dye number one, blue dye number two, red 40, yellow five, things like that. Uh, so that customers can can literally have their cake and eat it too, without worrying about eating anything petrochemical derived. That's incredible. But why why algae? Can you tell us the superpower that algae has that few people know about? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think one of the key lessons that I learned during this entire process is figure out what doesn't work first before trying to do what does work. And so when I got started, I interviewed around 250 different algae companies. And uh, part of my question process was, why Why isn't algae a thing? Why, why did it end up failing? And in particular, what I ended up learning is uh, lessons that kind of carry through virtually any 
scalable process in static biology and biotechnology. And some of those kind of lessons involve um, not needing a carbon source. I think that's really beneficial. So algae in particular sucks down CO2 from the atmosphere. It means that you don't need an exogenous carbon source or anything like that. Uh, it can just grab carbon from the air. And that is in, in that kind of way, it's sort of like trees in the sense that it's a huge carbon sink as you grow your algae. Another really interesting bit is that it's highly resistant to contamination. So we use both uh, filamentous strains and extremophilic strains, and that enables us to uh, grow at large scales in big pond systems virtually anywhere in the world without worrying about things crashing, worrying about things dying, or worrying about any kind of contaminants getting into our growth media. And then in addition, uh, by working with farms and working with farmers that already have this production infrastructure, it's a really quick and scalable way to go about producing various compounds. I think one of the big challenges in bottlenecks in biomanufacturing, and there was an executive order about this, about needing to replace about 30% of our chemical manufacturing in the United States by, I think, 2030. Um, one of the big challenges is that there just isn't enough tanks of stuff. And uh, there's only so many things that fermentation can end up doing. And so by leveraging algae, we can focus on much more mass market materials, things that are uh, broader in scope than stuff like volatiles or uh, pharmaceuticals. And so in particular, I'm taking a look at industries and uh, different compounds like mass scale enzyme manufacturing or uh, different kind of protein sweeteners, um, things like that, that enable us to actively produce large scale quantities of the stuff. So I think algae has a whole lot of benefits, uh, especially in that mid market range of things that are a couple hundred dollars a kilo. And that's where we're starting. And it's working out really, really well, uh, particularly for pigments, I think. Algae um, already produces pigments natively, and so it's a super high yield compared to the overall biomass, and it means that we can turn a profit, and uh, we've been breaking even now for the past couple months, which has enabled us to, to kind of go into a bit of hibernation mode while we prepare our materials for our first like major investment round. So you talked about fermentation capacity and fermentation being used as a method of bioproduction. And algae being an alternative to that, that might make sense in in different cost points or different volumes. For people that don't know what any of the things I just said mean, can you explain a little bit more what is fermentation, what is fermentation capacity, and and you know how is algae or engineered algae different than that? Sure. Yeah, of course. When we're talking about shifting the way that we produce things right now we mainly extract oil, right? And whenever you're extracting oil, you're pulling up some black stuff from the ground, and then you, you basically boil it and light it on fire. And by doing that, it emits tons of CO2 during this process, but it separates out into various components, various compounds. So think of it kind of like distilling alcohol, like whiskey or vodka or something like that. You're going through the same kind of process when you use oil to produce various compounds. Well, um, when you're growing things, there's a couple of different ways to go about doing it. One of those ways is something called fermentation, where you take a ton of sugar, which is normally derived from corn or derived from sugarcane, and then you end up feeding all of that into a fermenter. So kind of like brewing beer, but the conditions have to be particularly controlled. And when you feed this to an organism that's engineered in a certain kind of way, it produces the compound that you really want. And once that compound's produced inside the organism, you got to break it open, you got to separate it out, 
and you end up getting that compound. And this is kind of the idea behind uh, biotechnology and synthetic biology, uh, using biology to grow these things as opposed to having to extract it from the ground, lighting it on fire, emitting tons of CO2. And so fermentation has been used to produce pharmaceuticals, stuff like insulin for years and years and years, um, small batches, very, very controlled, and uh, in such a way that we're able to actively not have to kill a ton of pigs, I think. At one point, we were killing like hundreds of thousands of pigs a year um, and then like seriously blending their pancreases to extract <laughs> insulin. And then that would only be enough. Like you'd take 100,000 pigs and it would only be enough for like 700 people to survive for a year. It was insane. And so so now we end up having these small tanks of uh, bacteria that produce insulin for people. And the idea is that if you feed sugar to these various microbes, they'll be able to produce more complex molecules and things that we end up using on a day-to-day basis. The, the challenge with that is that these are pressurized containers. And then because you're using sugar water, if you ever let, left sugar water out on the counter, you see like a whole lot of mold and other things grow in it. And so you got to be very, very controlled and small is better than big. And so there are some challenges associated with growing large-scale amounts of anything when it comes to fermentation. Uh, we're basically taking a pharmaceutical engineering technique that's only meant to produce milligrams of something and trying to produce metric tons of it. And so in particular, when you're looking at algae, uh, algae already is produced on the metric ton scale. It's in these big ponds. Think of uh, anytime you see an algae bloom, you can see it from space. And so when we're thinking about how to produce at the scale of biology, what does biology already do? So we just worked backwards from something that biology is already doing at a massive scale and co-opting those kind of techniques as a means of producing the kind of molecules that we want to sub out these petrochemicals and oil production compounds. And so, yeah, starting from the the massive scale of like big algae blooms, we just induce algae blooms uh, in a controlled setting, a pond system, kind of like what you would find in back of your pool if you didn't treat it. And then we scoop it all up. We dry it out, we press it, uh, we end up uh, filtering it out using kind of like a complicated uh, coffee filtering process, for lack of a better term. And then that's how we end up getting all of the various compounds and colors uh, that uh, we are selling on to various clients. And so I hope that that kind of like helps gauge the different techniques. Super, super helpful. Thank you. And how do you go about teaching algae or engineering algae to make what you care about and what would be a dream product to make if you can make anything without you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I am preparing actually to start and kick off this experiment. We're gonna we're gonna run this because this has been a dream of mine for a while is making oxytocin in algae and spirulina. Oh. Um, <laughs> I call it love potion number slime. I'm very <laughs> curious. As to what's going to happen, it is a nine amino acid um, molecule. It's not, it's not that big, and it's something where it's more for fun than anything else. But uh, yeah, and then if you consume proteins, they end up breaking down in your stomach, so you don't really have the effect or anything like that. But I'm just curious, and it, it's kind of like an art, artistic project, something sort of fun to do, and a little bit of DNA that we can order. Um, in essence, we, we've tried a bunch of different things to go about engineering this non-model organism. So when I'm talking about a non-model organism, normally there's hundreds of thousands of science hours that are spent on very particular types of organisms. Like we have the E. coli K12 strain, which is more or less like the golden retriever of the bacteria community. Uh, <laughs> it is so domesticated 
that you can do pretty much anything to it. And um, people know a whole lot about this, this organism. It's modeled. And so um, what that means is that if you're working with an organism that isn't conventionally known, like we were starting all the way back in 2016, you have to come up with all kinds of new techniques to end up working with it. And there aren't the conventional software, or hardware, or wetware, different ways to go about engineering it. So initially, we were starting on using novel techniques, uh, stuff like agrobacteria transformations, which is basically taking another bacteria and getting that bacteria to insert DNA into your algae. And at the end of the day, we, we kind of realized if you just overload the cell with tons of DNA, uh, there's all these helper bacteria around that end up inserting that DNA into the cell. And so that's that natural competency transformation has been one of the better ways to go about engineering our algae. And then we've started to work on some more automated methods of doing so. And so doing high throughput strain engineering in a non-model organism is a very hard challenge. Um, and it's something that we've spent years and years now developing these techniques, and we're moving into the realm of speeding up that process. So going from something that would normally take about 10 months manually to something that would is now taking under a month using robots. And that's kind of the premise of our, our fundraise is to go about focusing in and getting the equipment and bringing them on board the additional people that will enable that rapid iterative engineering to happen. With so much to do, what is it like running Spira as the CEO? Yeah, right now we're, we're a team of four. And so I don't get much sleep. And um, <laughs> most of what I end up doing is customer management, ops, logistics, um, things like that, so that I can free up time for our scientific team to go about doing things. I haven't stepped foot in the lab in about a year, um, which I'm really sad about. Um, but I would love to get back in the lab at a certain point. I think that in particular, though, I really enjoy working with clients and understanding their needs. Um, we've worked with Colgate, we've worked with Kellogg, we've worked with um, Molson Coors, we've worked with Clorox, we've worked with um, Haynes and Wrangler and all kinds of different companies. And so being able to understand their particular needs and then going about following through on what they're looking for. Um, that's kind of my bread and butter. And so mainly working on the customer side of things, I tend to also revert back and do customer communication product as that reflects back on the scientific team. So translating um, customer needs into uh, product decisions, going back to the DNA design work side of things so that we can figure out exactly how to tweak things, what the customer might need. Um, then what I end up doing is, is a lot of coordination with our farms. Um, we working with 83 farms, we tier them in, in three different tiers. So our tier one farms are our primary suppliers Our tier two, we end up reverting to uh, if we need to. And then our tier three, only if we have to. Um, and so talking to the farmers has been really wonderful and coordinating shipments and kind of figuring all of that out. Um, and then on the fundraising side of things, finance side of things, I do all the admin and paperwork. And so all of that really involves uh, <laughs> sort of good financial accounting systems and all of the headaches of the back office stuff. Um, but in particular, uh, using the, doing that in such a way that it's mostly automated so that I can focus on strategic uh, problem solving and uh, projecting out what our future is going to look like. 
So yeah, it's uh, it's relatively busy. So I, I would like to have some additional hands on board the team um, just to kind of make things a little bit easier. Amazing. You had mentioned you're starting with this Tesla Roadster high value, maybe smaller market, but you know high margins, hopefully, of pigments. With Spira, do you have a product in mind that's like the mass market, mass scale that you would move towards? Yeah, yeah. So um, I call it the four P's, right? And we're we're starting with pigments. We then go to uh, proteins and engineered proteins, and we go to plastics, and eventually the complexity of pharmaceuticals. Um, also, because it takes about ten years for pharmaceuticals to get to market, it's far better to focus on stuff that's faster to get to market that also has a large enough margin. To, to have it make sense. And so in particular, I think when, when looking at the built environment materials around us, that's when you get to the large scale carbon impact, uh, ranging from like various plastics that we use on a day to day basis, like everything is made of plastic. And so what if we had plastics that had triggered biodegradability or had uh, performance characteristics and criteria that enable us to create like protein based plastics that, um, are healthy for us that when they go on your skin, they actually have a probiotic effect. And th- these are some things that you can end up engineering uh, in to your base level materials if you're able to engineer them from the start with DNA. And so I think the kind of like killer app for what we're working on uh, is something where uh, we have the ability to produce raw materials locally in particular. And then there's stuff that people use on a day-to-day basis like plastics I think in terms of getting to that scale, though, um, it starts off uh, at a smaller um, sort of approach to create a beachhead and then gradually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But uh, I'm definitely pointing in the direction of uh, growing everything using algae at a, at a metric ton scale. I think that um, we're, when we start producing enzymes, it's going to get really interesting. Because you can start using these enzymes to do simpler uh, reactions and I haven't seen any company kind of approaching enzyme supply uh, in a really robust way to produce like metric tons of enzymes. And that completely changes the game when it comes to uh, global sort of economies of scale in biology. For people that might not know, what would one want with metric tons of enzymes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do we need that? <laughs> yeah. So, so like a pertinent example, if we're, if we're talking about mining as an example, right? The mining industry right now ends up using cyanide and they end up using mercury as a means of leaching different kinds of uh, metals. In particular, I'm thinking about like gold was a research project that my team ended up doing. And so if you end up using stuff like carbonic anhydrase, a particular enzyme that grabs onto uh, carbonates, and ends up converting them, um, that ends up breaking down rock in a far more effective way. And using pure enzyme um, or enzymes in a very particularly constructed reactor system means that you can start getting lower lower grade ores and lower quantities of ores virtually anywhere. And in a way that is biodegradable, in a way that doesn't release cyanide into the environment or <laughs> mercury into the environment, yeah. um, it just seems like a better process overall. And something where we would be able to kind of onshore a lot of these metal and mineral mining processes. So, so that's just one particular small example 
with a huge outsized impact of the way uh, these enzymes might be able to work. I mean, you, you go from that all the way to Tide Pods um, and detergents. Um, these are kind of lower impact detergents that don't end up degrading all these microfibers that get into the water supply. So there, there's all kinds of different things that you can end up doing when you start grappling with enzymes and how they're used and lowering the overall expense. Got it. Super helpful. Thank you. Let's talk about things that you've learned. You have done a ton of experiments, both with biology and with entrepreneurship. What are some of the big things that you have learned in your journey and that you wish you would have known in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. This is, this is kind of a meme that I've seen where, uh, in, in particular, reflecting back on, on the way investors make decisions, um, year one investors tend to say like they invest in people. Year two to seven, they invest in like CAC to LTV ratios and all of the IRR and all these like mechanisms. Year eight and beyond, they just go back to investing in people. And I think uh, that's one of the core lessons that I learned too, is that um, I think people matter the most when it comes to building anything whatsoever. I One of my very first investors, Bill Liao, once told me um, that there's two things that cause a company to fail. Either you run out of money or you give up. And if I run out of money, I'll live on algae. And so <laughs> really, at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of like, how quickly can you learn and iterate over time? And then who are the people around you that enable uh, the improbable to become possible? And I think that talent and uh, the construction of a, a well-constructed team goes a really, really long way. And so um, now, after seven years of working on this, I think that we have kind of the foundational members of a team that's really world-class, and I'm really excited in the next stage of what we're working on. Perfect. Thank you to everybody for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about our conversation or to get involved with the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.